Well, one more time, good morning. We're really, really glad you're here. You've caught us in week number two of a message series called The Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Now, last week was Resurrection Sunday. We call it Easter Sunday. It's the day we celebrate, really, the culmination of the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth. But we thought it would be really important to make sure that all of us had a chance to, once again, with fresh eyes and open hearts and receptive minds, to look again at the life of Jesus. And so we're looking at four major themes in the Gospel of Mark, one of those four books in your New Testament that tells the story of Jesus' life. We're looking at four major themes that really, I think, are just as true today as they were back then. I think Jesus wants us to know them and do them as much today as he did back then. I think his followers, to really be his followers, to really honor God and walk with God and enjoy the life that God has for us, we need to value these things just as much as Jesus wanted those original groups of people to honor and follow them. So last week we talked about this great concept that for me is at the bedrock of what this church is about. It's the idea that when Jesus came to this earth, his first invitation to most everybody he met was a single word. And it was the word follow. Here's why Jesus had that idea at the, at, the, at the edge of his mouth and the first words out of his mouth to people is he knew this idea that if he could get people to follow him, they would walk with him long enough, he would have the opportunity to explain to them what God is all about. He knew that if people would follow him, he would have multiple opportunities to show them what the Father is like. He could show them God's heart. He could reveal to them God's character. He would show them God's truth. And that following of Jesus would put them close enough to him, long enough, so that he could share with them his primary message, which is God loves you, God wants to have a relationship with you, but you are separated by God because of your sin, but that isn't going to keep God from reaching out to you. So Jesus came to this earth and he said to everybody, would you follow me? And that invitation, by the way, is still available to us today. Last week, almost two dozen people, either in a complete way or in a partial way, said, I want to follow Jesus. And what that means is is that this church is simply a continuation of what Jesus started a long time ago. So that when you see us, for instance, giving money to the Smoky Mountain Children's Home, or you see us building and expanding an orphanage, or building a church, or digging wells in Uganda, all we're trying to do is continue the very thing that Jesus started. So wouldn't it be a tragedy if I were to explain to you that for the last 30 years, churches have been losing people right and left. That rather than people beginning to follow Jesus and beginning to fall in love with Jesus and beginning to have their lives changed by the power of the Holy Spirit as they receive the truth of Jesus, rather than that happening, people between the ages of about 15 and about 30 have been turning their backs on the church. They basically said, what you're offering We don't need. This is a unique time in all of human history. We've never seen this in this dramatic and focused way that we're seeing it today where an entire segment of our demographic, people we love, people who are our sons and daughters, our brothers, our sisters, biologically, people we live next to, an entire demographic seems to be saying what the church is offering, we don't need. 
And if the whole purpose of Jesus coming was so that we would know him and walk with him and know the Father, well, what's happening? What's happening to make an entire group of people say, what you're offering, we don't need it in our life. What's different about today? And so today, I want to come to you with really powerful truths from the Gospel of Mark that I think serve as the antidote to this prevailing problem in churches across America. And you find really the hints at what I want to get to right there in chapter 1 of Mark. Here's what chapter 1 of Mark says right near the beginning. So we're still doing in the gospel introductory stuff. After John was put in prison, the Bible tells us, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now, good news is simply the expanded way of saying the word gospel. The definition of the word gospel is the two words, good news. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. And here's what the gospel is in short form. The time has come. There was a time before, but now Jesus is saying, I'm here. The, the writer in Galatians says it this way, that at the appointed time, God sent Jesus into this world to proclaim his truth. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. We sung a song a little bit earlier about the kingdom of God, how that those of us that are in relationship with God, that have received his grace, not by anything we've earned, but because of the pure love of God towards us. We are now a part of that kingdom. We are, I am, you are, we are the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come, here's the operative word, it's come near, near. This is beautiful because this idea that the kingdom of God has come near really lines up with what Jesus said to everybody he met. Drop your nets, follow me. Matthew, get up from your tax collector's table, follow me. Get near to me. His idea was, is if you get near to me physically in that day, you'll be near to the kingdom of God. I'm bringing God's rule and reign. I'm bringing his kingdom the way he wants this world to line up. I'm fixing what's wrong with the world. I'm bringing heaven to earth. I'm bringing it near. And when you get near to me, you're getting close to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is near. So what do we need to do? We need to repent. Which sounds like an awful churchy word. Let me just help you. It simply means to turn around, to change your mind, to stop going in a direction and go in a new direction. We need to turn around, and then here, here's our word for today. Believe the good news. Jesus walked up to everybody and said, would you follow me? Look, I, I know you're a tax collector. In fact, I know you're one rung below the sinners. You are sinners and tax collectors. But would you follow me? I know. I right, listen. I know you're a prostitute. But if you'll let me, he said, I'll give you water to drink and you'll never be thirsty again. I'll sit here and talk with you while everybody else is shunning you other than your suitors. Jesus said to people, I know that you've blown it. I know you're at the bottom. But if you'll get near to me, near to me, and you'll follow me, I'll show you the Father. Now, the Apostle John, by the way, the Apostle John was very close to Jesus. Here's how close the Apostle John was to Jesus. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, Jesus looked at John and he said, John, there's my mom. When I'm gone, will you take care of her? 
John was close to Jesus. They had a bond. John described his bond with Jesus this way. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. And whenever I read that, I always think, man, it sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? But if you pull back the veneer a little bit, all he's saying is, look, I don't know what you guys think about your relationship with God. I don't know how you think he thinks about you, but I know this. When I think about my relationship with God, I know he loves me. And so in one sense, we're all the disciples that Jesus loves. John, when he wrote about Jesus in his first part of his gospel, Matthew, Mark, we're looking at Luke, and then John. We won't turn there, but here's what John said. That Jesus, who is very God, came to this earth to show us the Father, to make him, in John chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, to make him known to us. And over the course of John's life, over the course of Matthew's life, we talked about last week, over the course of Mark's life, the book, the author that wrote the book we're reading now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and in the lives of many people in this room, they would say to you that as they followed God, something changed in them. That there came a moment in time when they weren't just walking behind him, but something shifted. They began, and here's the word for today, they began to believe, believe. Now listen, I know what's happening right now. I know it because I've been around. You're in church, I've used the word repent, I've used the word gospel, and now I'm using my third $10 religious term that you've heard a thousand times if you've been in church. The word is now believe. And since you've been here and you've been there and done that, for many of you, you're already turning it off. And yet when Mark wrote his gospel, he wasn't writing it as a newspaper article in real time as it happened. Let me fill you in for just a minute. Mark wrote his gospel some 30 to 40 years after the events. And here's why he wrote it. People had heard the stories of Jesus. Peter and Matthew and John, they were preaching about Jesus, about his message, about his truth. They were extending the invitation that Jesus came to this earth to give all of us. And people were converting and beginning to believe and becoming disciples. And the church was growing. And then time passed. And the people who were the original eyewitnesses to the events, time began to take its toll on them. Some of them began to pass away. Many of them were prematurely murdered because of their faith. They were martyred for their faith. And there came to be a concern that said this, what are we going to do to make sure that the story of Jesus, that his message doesn't get corrupted? That we don't lose it, that we preserve the stories that Peter told from memory because he lived it. That we preserve the stories that John told from memory because he lived it. What are we going to do to make sure that those stories don't disappear with time? And so the Holy Spirit began to move on certain men within the larger church. They began to write down their stories. It's very likely that Mark was one of the first ones to do that. We don't know that. It's speculation, but it's likely. And he began to write down the stories. And in the first chapters of all of their books, they tell you what they're about. So Mark tells us that the point of his gospel is that we would know that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. And if we'll turn and follow him, and if we will believe him, 
It'll make a radical difference. So what is it we're asked to believe? What is it we're asked to believe? One of the things that breaks my heart is true in some of my extended family. It's true in people who used to come and sit in these seats. It's true in our larger culture that many people have rejected the message of the church as they have heard it, as they have understood it, sadly, even as it was preached. But they weren't really rejecting the Jesus of the Bible. They weren't really rejecting the Jesus that came to this earth and left a black and white teaching about the character and nature of God. They were rejecting what they believed was being taught and decided they don't need that anymore in their life. It's happening all across America. And it begs the question, exactly what did Jesus want us to believe? And what does believe mean anyway? Because I know this is true. I know that in churches all over America, and sadly, I bet it happens in this room today. Some of us who have grown up around the God stuff, we've been around it. It's not all that foreign to us. We not, may not be the greatest theologians, but we have a pretty good grasp in our own minds of what it's all about. We are informed. We have mental knowledge. We even shake our head and acknowledge it's true. But in our hearts, for many of us, there is a coldness to the things of God. There is a detachment from the God of the Scripture. There is a weariness about the environment of God's stuff. And in an environment like that, people check out. People decide for themselves, I don't know that I'm on board with that anymore. You add to that all kinds of human dynamics, and the situation just gets a little worse. You add to it to the fact that in every single pulpit in America right now, including this one right here immediately in front of you, there isn't a single perfect leader. And we blow it. We make people upset. We disappoint. And that just adds fuel to the fire. You add to it that in every human institution, even in divine institutions filled by human people called the church, human beings, when they get together, well, it's a mess sometimes. And people disappoint. And you add to it a very, a very insidious dynamic where people believe that if they did what the church told them to do, now follow me here, we're right at the bedrock. People believed if they did what they thought the church was telling them to do, that somehow God was obligated to make their life the way they would like their life to be. Here's what they said. Now listen, I'm a pastor. You can disagree with my point, but I'm telling you what I'm saying. I've heard it a thousand times. Ben, I gave my life to Jesus. I tried to follow. I'm a good guy. I'm, oh, I'm not perfect. I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy, right? And what they mean by that is when you stack it all up, here's the stack of the bad stuff, and the good stuff stacks just a little higher. Maybe it does, maybe it don't. I don't know. I'm not your judge. But in their mind, what's happening is an insidious little process that, that perverts what Jesus wanted us to believe. 
They believe that because they're pretty good and they're generally following and they're generally informed and they're generally on board, then somehow God is obligated to them because after all, his whole purpose in life anyway is to make me good, bless my life. Uh, When does that show up? It shows up when somebody says, I didn't get into the school I wanted to get into, and I prayed about it, and my family prayed, and we prayed, and and I've been a good student in youth group, and it didn't happen for me. It happens when some girl breaks up with some guy, and either the girl or the guy is like, I don't, I don't, I don't. It happens when a believer gets ill. And deep down, there is this contract almost, this idea. Nobody does it intentionally, but somehow our churches are perpetuating this idea. That if you generally get on board with churchy stuff, and if you generally kind of clean up your life, get moral, then what God will do is he will make your life, well, he'll make you good, and he'll bless you. He'll kind of fix you, and you'll be on a good path. And yet when you read the Bible, you see followers of Jesus have a wide range of experiences as they were faithful to God. For many of them, as they followed God, blessing after blessing was piled into their lap to the point that it almost seems unfair. And it's called the favor of God. Can't do anything about it. It's just what he chose to do. And for others, from our perspective at least, it looks like it just rained on them over and over and over. Mark, the guy who wrote the book we're kind of looking at the major themes about, this guy goes on a crazy journey of faith with church leaders disappointing and fighting over him. and We can't even use you anymore because you're a mama's boy. That's what the Bible actually says about Mark at one point. Paul says, I can't use you. You're a mama's boy. And then later on in his life when Paul's about to die, he says, okay, now go ahead and bring Mark to me. He's now useful. If anybody had reason to be disappointed in church leadership, it's the guy who wrote the book we're studying. If you look at Peter, Peter in the Bible described him being in a situation where he starts talking a lot about suffering and pain. And you bring history along with that and it begins to illuminate why he wrote so much about suffering and pain. Because he ends up giving his life in Rome under one of the Roman Caesars because he would not acknowledge that Caesar is Lord because he was committed to another idea. He believed that Jesus was Lord and you couldn't have two Lords. And he wouldn't stop proclaiming Jesus and elevating Caesar instead. He wouldn't do it. And history tells us that Peter was likely hung upside down to make the pain worse and because he didn't want to be hanged in the same way that his Savior was hanged. What was it about the faith of a guy like Mark and the faith of a guy like Peter? The faith of people in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 where we're told some of them overturned kingdoms. Some of them shut the mouths of the lions. Some of them tore down buildings. Some of them were flogged, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. And yet their faith stood And at the end of those descriptions about the people in history who had an unbelievable belief that wasn't simply based on their own quality of life, it ran deeper than that. It didn't run 
simply on the level of what they thought they could get out of God. It ran deeper than that. At the end of describing that to us, the book of Hebrews, the author there says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seeing as how we have such a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, let all of us run the race with perseverance. Let us run the race with perseverance. Sticking with it, not an up and down. Jesus did not come to this earth so that we would have the belief in a God who says, just be good, guys. Get your life cleaned up. Do the best you can. And when your good is better than your bad, you and I will be on good terms. If that's the kind of God you think we're preaching, there will come a day when you reject that message and you'll walk away. And here's the news. You should. That's not the offer God gave you. Get your life cleaned up. And when you do, I'll be in relationship with you. When you get it cleaned up, I'll start pouring down blessings on you. He didn't say, get good so I can bless you. That's not what he called us to believe. And he didn't say, here's my goal in life. I want you to live on easy street. He didn't say that. But my God, you can go all over our country, can't you? And you can find pulpit after pulpit proclaiming what I think is a bastardized gospel that says if God's involved in your life, woohoo, baby, it's good. And we believe to our own error, to the starvation of our soul, to the peril of the next generation. When we preach a gospel like this, we believe something that Jesus did not come and give his life for. The folks who study this, they give it kind of a long term. You can Google this if you want. But it's the fastest growing religion in America. It's not an organized thing at all. You know, we're all against organized religion. We like disorganized religion. We like religion that doesn't have any teeth. C.S. Lewis said, we like soft soap religion. You know soft soap religion? It's that soap that has sat in the bathtub and gotten all wet. That's what we really like. Doesn't really scrub, doesn't clean, doesn't leave a... What we've done, they say, is we've traded out the belief that we're asked to do for... You ready for this? The middle word, we'll start there. Therapeutic. We've traded out the gospel for the idea of a God who is therapeutic. The God that gets proclaimed, and I think the God that gets rejected and why people walk away, is the God that we say simply wants to make your life better, make you feel good. Just touch the edges of your life so that none of the pain of the sinful world that we live in, a sin that's running amok against God's standards, none of that touches you. Even more than that, so that when you commit your life to him, none of the seeds of sin that you've sown really touch you. You get elevated to a new plane. So we preach a therapeutic gospel. Not just therapeutic, where we want to bless everybody and make everybody feel good. There, there's a pre-word, pre there's, there's a scriptured word. There is a, uh, well, moralistic is the word I'm looking for. Moralistic. I know a lot of symbols. Uh, a lot of uh, 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 syllables, but, but hang with me. Uh, 
what, what gets preached and what gets embraced by people who grow up in church and been around God stuff. And it's my fear that somehow when you come to a church like us, this is what you think we're talking about. But it's not. We're not asking you to believe in a moralistic, clean up your life, please. Just be nice to your neighbor. Love as you'd like to be loved, and that's the essence of the gospel. Just treat people kind. Now listen, all of that has its place. That's a good message. You should probably do it because the truth is, if you don't do that and you raise up bad kids, I have to let my kids hang around your kids, and your kids are screwing mine up. Please get your life in order and quit messing up my kids. Of course that's a good message. But that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. That is not what Jesus came and asked you to believe. Just follow my good teachings, and when the good outweighs the bad, you and I, you're going to be okay with the man upstairs. That's not. And yet, I'm telling you, maybe even in this room, there are people who believe deep down that's what church is all about. There are kids growing up in youth groups, and they're being told, true love waits. True statement. But they don't believe that behind the statement of what we're encouraging people to do is a God who loves, a God who judges, a God who has an opinion, a God who wants a relationship. They're just trying to clean up the edges of their life. It's moralistic. It's therapeutic. And then there's another word. Deism. Now, listen, I know we're into the realm of philosophy here, but just hang with me for a second. We have a theology. We have a theology. We are theistic in our belief as Christians. We believe that there is a God, and in our theistic belief, that God interacts in this world. He sent his son, Jesus, who invited us to follow him long enough so that we could see with clarity what the Father's like. He's actively involved in our lives. He has a daily opinion about your life and what you're doing. He sits as a judge of the earth, but not just the earth in general. He sits as judge of your life, and he also sits with grace. And he is waiting with bated breath for you to put your hand in his so he can walk life with you. He is involved. He's present. He's near. Powerful. And yet most of us don't want a God like that. Most of us want that kind of God when we're in trouble. And because we believe in a therapeutic half-gospel, that's when we call on him. That, my friend, is why people between the ages of 15 and 30 are walking away from the church. There might be other reasons, but at the core, they have believed something less than the gospel. And when the boyfriend breaks up with them, when somebody gets sick, when their prayer doesn't get answered, when they don't get the job, when somebody disappoints them, their entire bedrock of their belief is shaken. Of course it would be. Because this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't come and say, get your life cleaned up and then we'll be good. And he doesn't come and say, all I really want for you to do is be happy. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't come to us and say, just call on me when you need me and I'll be there. Now he says something very different. He says, all of your best efforts at being good will never put you in right standing with me. You are a sinner. So am I, by the way. So am I. 
I am about as broken a guy as you'll ever meet. That's why I can't put my faith in my ability to earn a relationship with God, either directly by thinking I can or indirectly without ever really thinking about it, but kind of somehow falling into the trap that what really this is all about is just getting your life cleaned up. I did not commit my life to turn bad people into good people. The gospel writers did not commit their lives. They did not die on upside-down crosses. They did not burn on stakes. They did not get devoured by lions so that some people could get a little bit better and a little bit nicer and treat their neighbors better. They gave their lives to the message of Jesus Christ who came to this earth and said, you're a sinner, but you can walk with me. But there needs to come a time when you repent and believe. What do we believe? Then do you, do you really believe that Jesus came, was born of a virgin, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross, and three days later, he was resurrected, and the tomb is empty, and now he sits in heaven, and one day he's coming back on a white horse to get us? Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Absolutely, 100%. That's exactly what I believe. That's exactly what I believe. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we preach anything other than the gospel of Jesus, and somehow you believe church is about making your marriage better, and that's the goal. No, you don't, as I said in our marriage series, you don't need a better marriage. You need a better relationship with Jesus, and then you follow the teaching of Scripture, and then a good marriage is the result. God doesn't need to alleviate your financial problems. You need a committed relationship with the creator of the universe who looks you in the eye and says, you can't do this. You can't connect with me. You're a sinner, and I'm too holy. But... I'll extend my grace to you. Quit trying to be good and earn this thing and acknowledge your sin before me and let me wash it away. Then I'll begin to walk with you. Oh, and by the way, I left you a gift called the Bible that has a lot to say about money. And so you've been dishonoring me with your money for the last 20 years and now you want me to bail you out? All right, let's get started today. But I didn't come to make you happy. Oh, you really want to get into that school? Oh, you really want a relationship with that girl? Oh, you really want the person you love to be healed of this thing? And what's going to happen when it doesn't happen? Your entire foundation is shaken because God, listen, listen to this. This is preposterous. God disappointed you? Really? Could it be that you just are ignorant of the God of the Bible? Because you were around it enough to think you were familiar with the terms, but rarely did you ever crack the book and discover the Jesus of Scripture. This week, five times, I encountered people who have been so submersed in Christian culture. They know it all. They know that there's only five answers to every question in life. Jesus, read the Bible, pray, go to church, love your mama. They know that no matter what the questions are, that's the answer. And their hearts are stone cold. I'm sick of it. The gospel of Jesus Christ that we're called to believe is a man who came to this earth and gave his life not so you could be better, but so that you could be washed clean because you couldn't do it on your own. It's about a God who came and said, look, 
There is blessing in following God, of course. But we don't follow for the blessing. We follow because it's true. Which means that when the blessings from our perspective and only from our perspective disappear, we still follow. And our faith isn't shaken because the details of our life aren't where we want them to be. That's how holy men of old, moved upon by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, wrote such powerfully inspiring words. That's why God left this testimony. That's why it's imperative that Christian churches teach, of course we serve the poor. Of course we build orphanages. But that's not our gospel. That's the result of us believing that it's true. And it doesn't earn us God's favor. Friends, listen, this isn't popular. Of course not. You know what happens around here? We see people come to church. Just a little prophetic word from your pastor for a second. And sometimes there's an area of their life, usually in our environment, because we're in the suburbs, we all look pretty good. It's usually not a total life failure, but there's an area of their life where they're struggling, maybe two. But they've kept it up pretty good, but now it's starting to crumble. So they come to church and they hear powerful biblical teaching from a guy who does pretty okay about a good marriage. That's meant to be a joke, no, no arrogance. And they hear about good, and they start tinkering around the edges with biblical principles, bringing a few things into their life. Oh, they don't buy on board with Jesus. They won't admit, I am a sinner. I am not able to do this on my own. I am not going to connect with God through my own efforts. All of my righteousness is as filthy menstrual rags. They're not there, but they're tinkering with their marriages. And you know what happens because it's biblical and true? The blessings begin to come into their life. And the pressure releases. And you know what happens when the pressure's gone? Would you guess? See ya! Boom! Gone. Somehow, friends, we have to regularly remind ourselves that the gospel of Jesus Christ is something we commit to. We believe it. And it's not just acknowledging that it happened or that it's true, but that somehow it's true for you. And you put your stake and claim in that place. You know how this church will be around for 20 years? When it's crystal clear to every single person that comes here for any length of time, maybe not their first week, maybe not their first month, but very regularly they're confronted with the claims of Jesus that you are a sinner destined for hell and that's what you and I both deserve. And yet there's a God who loves you and says, don't you dare think you can clean yourself up and get up close to a holy God. But go ahead and grab my hand anyway because I love you. And then you come to him and you realize that even on your best day you fall short. So that if there's a single blessing in your life, if there is a single blessing in your life, he's a good God. Even if the other stuff in your life is messed up. When we preach a half gospel, people reject it. And they should. Many of your kids and neighbors and cousins and family and friends and coworkers aren't in church because they've rejected the gospel of Christ. They've rejected moralistic, therapeutic deism. And they should. That's why God raises up churches like this one. To hold God's word in reverence and say, this is the authoritative word of God. Bend towards it. Bend towards it. 
Because in it, you will find the answer to life. In it, you will find the bedrock of life. That's why people who came before you, who are sitting in these seats today, who are part of the original launch team of this church said, we'll give our money, we'll give our time, not to simply make people's lives a little better. Not to run a PR campaign for Jesus to make him a little cooler. Not to have haze and lights and cool, amazing instrumentation before service. By the way, that was my awesome daughter right there in the middle. She's amazing. Love her. That's not why we gave and served and sweated and put up with pig-headed people. We did it because we believe at the end of the day, there is a gospel speaking loud. And it still changes people. And our hearts were broken by people who were around it, and somehow it didn't take. We were saddened by our nephews and our nieces and our cousins and our kids turning their back on the church, and in their minds, they were turning their back on God. But they weren't turning their back on the God of the Scripture. They were turning their back on the bastardized version that somehow had been proclaimed to them. And we just want to say, come home. Come home. There's a God who loves you. And I know it's a stretch, but you can put your faith in him. And that foundation is sure. That foundation is complete. That foundation, while you don't earn it by being good, that foundation makes something rise up in you and you find yourself regularly saying, I believe in Jesus. And when I sing, my heart is lifted. When I sing about his glory and his grace and his goodness. And somehow it makes me want to treat my brothers and sisters in this world a little better. It makes me want to be a better husband. It makes me want to be a better father. And our prayers shift a little. We still pray about everything that's heavy on our hearts. But we're not just calling out in desperation to a God to somehow live up to a promise we thought he made us. We're casting our cares on the one who cares for us, knowing that no matter what he does, he's still good, he's still God, he's still reliable. Our invitation to you, to every one of you, I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years, what do you really believe? Does this God have authority in your life? Or is he there to just touch the edges? The reason we ramped up for Easter. And every big day around here we ramp up. And of course we want to put our best foot forward. Of course we want smiles all around. Like the old fantasy island where the plane is, people are deplaning and tattoos there and Mr. Rourke. And he's like, smiles, everybody. Of course, that's what we do. Of course. But our whole heart is to help people not simply get touched by the gospel, but to be radically changed from the category of sinner and lost to found and saved. And then to know and begin to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms people from the inside out when most of us want our outside fixed and we don't really care about our hearts. If by chance you think I'm being too hard, 
Give me, sincerely, a week of your time. And let me have you sit with me with people who will tell you how that somehow God has let them down because they didn't get in the school they wanted to get into. Some church was overly legalistic. Some parent didn't do what they were supposed to do. And at the end of it, there's still a God shouting large saying, but I'm here and I haven't changed. And I still love you. Where did you get your eyes off of me? Mark wrote his gospel so that we would believe in that kind of Jesus. And it happened all the way through his story. In Mark chapter 15, at the very near the end of the story, just one chapter before the very end of the story, here's what the Bible said. Look what happened to this guy. It's an an odd story. The moment Jesus was hung on the cross, hanged on the cross and died, the Bible says that the curtain in the temple, the, the, the church, was torn from the top to the bottom. And then there was this Roman centurion who was a part of the process of crucifying our Lord. He stood there in front of Jesus. He had a direct front line seat to the Savior of this world. And he's watching it go down. He was close to the kingdom. Physically. And he stood there in front of Jesus. And he saw how he died. And he said, listen, listen to this phrase. Surely this man is the Son of God. He didn't say, surely this man came to touch the details of my life. Surely this man came to make me happy. Surely this man... Surely this man is the Son of God. Friends, we need more Jesus in our lives. You find him in the pages of the Bible. You find him when Christians gather to worship. You find him when the Word of God is preached. You find him in a variety of places, but Christians throughout the centuries when the church had prevailed have always clung to the Jesus of the Bible, not what we can get out of him. Let me ask you again, what is it you believe? I have prayed for you this week. My heart has been broken. I feel like God's given me a burden. It's made me, made me a little serious. And you just have to put up with it. I ain't changing for a while. God has me here for a while. And um, I'm not trying to be arrogant at all, but this is the gospel of Jesus. This is not Ben's words. And I have heard God specifically lean on me and say, bring it back, Ben. Not that you were wrong. Listen, we do this well. We do this well. But for the next few weeks, the whole reason we delved into Mark to begin with was so that people could see and follow and obey and determine their life by Jesus. I want to ask you to not be soft soap. Don't be wet bread. Be made of finer constitution. Be made of tougher stuff. And come with an open heart and ask yourself, have I been around it so long that I can be around the truth of God and it doesn't even stir me anymore? Have I been around it so long that they're just words? Have I been around it so long that I've taken up the seat of the evaluator? Good sermon, good music. Be a little off-key there, a little loud here. Good lighting, nice haze, too much haze. Have I taken on the seat of the critic rather than the disciple who is learning at the feet of his master? I'm telling you, friends, for this pastor... For this church, we are going to intently set ourselves at the feet of Jesus with renewed vigor. I'm tired of people turning their back 
and what they believe is the Jesus of the Bible when they don't even know him. They've rarely cracked open the Bible and read the story for themselves. And when the stories were preached, everything was reduced to a three-step plan to get out of debt. Five steps to a better marriage. Two steps to a whatever. When Jesus says, you're a sinner, and I have the gift of the Holy Spirit waiting for you to begin to transform your life. So, why don't you take out your connect card. Let's take a few next steps together. Hey, can you tell I'm a little serious? Amen. All right. So, uh, without any fanfare, next step A, there are people in this room, honestly, who need to commit their lives to Jesus. It's why he came, why he gave his life. If you'd like to do that, check next step A. This church will partner with you to help you understand that commitment and begin to experience the life God has for you, a life that has a foundation that is solid. Next step B, I want to get baptized. Hey, <laughs> um, we call it going public with your faith. Um, Jesus said it a little bit more directly than I do. He said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Hey, no guilt, it's just his words. Next step, see. <laughs> I need a clearer picture of Jesus in my life. I mean, listen, he's standing at the foot of the cross. The Savior of the world is bleeding and has just breathed his last breath. And in that picture in mind, he said, you're the Son of God. What does God have to do to get your attention? Make your life perfect? as you define it in this moment, which is probably different than how you defined it three years ago? Oh, is that, is that what it takes to keep you engaged? If that's you, just be honest. I don't need to know, but I'd love to pray for you. Just check the box and say, oh my God, 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 draw me back. I need a clearer picture of you, God. Let's be serious about what he came to give his life for anyway. Next step, D. This is huge, friends. The implications of this will change your life. I am today rejecting all claims of righteousness other than Jesus Christ alone. All my claims of righteousness. I know the Bible. I'm rejecting that as my relationship with God. I'm a pretty good person. I'm rejecting that as my claim that God is okay with me, that I'm in right standing with him. That I have the right pedigree that my dad was a pastor, that I serve in the church, that I serve every single Sunday, and I give up my sermon time to go. I'm rejecting all claims of righteousness, save Christ alone. It's bold. Next step, D. We're building a church so that the gospel of Jesus can be made known. And it will be cool, and it will be hip, and people will be wild, and some people will say we spent too much money. And it's all right. It's all good. But I want you to come two Tuesdays from now for a major update and prayer. And between now and when we get into our building, we're going to proclaim every single word found in this book over that place. I'm going to tell you about it next week. We're going to read it cover to cover. I like to say from table of contents to map, we're reading it all, proclaiming God's word in that space. And we're doing 48 hours of constant prayer in that space. Because if we get in that building and we grow a church, and people don't know Jesus. We failed. It's not happening. So I want you to come, and let's begin it. Let's begin it. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus. God, you messed me up. I'm so glad. 
God, thank you for the testimony of this church and its faithful servants over the years. But God, we commit to you, fresh and new, that we are Jesus' people. We're a gospel church. And we hold high the authority of your word. We're not looking for success. We're looking only to please our Savior. God, make that message crystal clear to every person who comes to this place. That Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners. I pray it in the powerful name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen.